You're listening to Nick Luck Daily. This edition is brought to you by Fitzdares, by the Racehorse Owners Association, and by Thoroughbred Racing Commentary's Global Rankings. Hello, good morning, welcome to the show. It is Friday, July the 21st. I'm sounding chipper enough for somebody who's recording this at five o'clock in the morning in New Jersey, near Monmouth Park, where I'm here for the TVG.com Haskell that takes place tomorrow. More of that later with the owner of one of the leading contenders for the race, uh, the fascinating Arabian Nights, who after just two starts is trying to lower the colours of the Kentucky Derby winner, Mage. But there's plenty more besides. More of that later in the show. I'll also uh, be talking to French trainer Stéphane Vartel, who's got high hopes of his Sim Camille running a bold race in the King George. And he's booked Christophe Soumier to ride the horse as well. And there's a very interesting story about how that horse got his name. You'll be finding out a bit more later in the show. Uh, also today, Francis Crowley tells me about the legacy left by her late husband, Pat Smullen, as money continues to flood in for cancertrials.ie, Cancer Trials Ireland, and the Pat Smullen race day takes place on August the 26th. Plus, very shortly, you'll be hearing from Mark Johnston, the man who's trained more winners than anybody else in British racing history about why sometimes bigger is in fact better, contrary perhaps to some of the reports that you've been reading today about trainers stopping going out of business and a general reduction in the amount of trainer numbers. But it is a classic weekend uh, in Europe because tomorrow sees the running of the Irish Oaks, which we talked about quite a bit on Tuesday when last I was with Jane Mangan. Uh, I am in sultry, steamy, balmy, very hot and humid New Jersey. Jane, you're about to be in a whole world of wet hurt in in Ireland by the looks of the latest forecast. What have we got in store? They're going to be swimming, aren't they, at the Curragh tomorrow? Well, I'm going to be well prepared on this occasion. Um, Anybody travelling to the Curragh tomorrow, don't say you weren't told by the forecast. Look, the ground report came in from the track this morning that they'd had a dry night, um, but it, it is yielding, yielding to soft in places as it stands with the forecast for the weekend that rain is to move in this afternoon, Friday afternoon, with accumulations of between 20 to 25 mils up to Sunday afternoon. So let's just say if you're on the likes of Save the Last Dance, who ploughed through the soft ground at Chester quite effectively, or even Azazat, who won her maiden on soft to heavy ground at Leopardstown, they won't be inconvenienced. But when you're looking at a horse like Lumiere Rock, who was so effective on good to firm and warm heart, both of them in the ribbles there on, on good to firm, it won't suit every filly. But for the for the patrons who are planning to go there, be prepared. Well, Lumiere Rock's jockey is Dylan Brown McMonagall, and this is what he had to say about his filly's chances. She's obviously very solid. Her form has been really good. Um, she had a really nice run the last day in Ascot. The pace of the race wouldn't have suited. Um, we went slow, and Warmheart obviously got first run in the straight. Um, but Luminaire Rock was obviously running her down late on, finished off really good. Um, she's improving with every run, and, and she's got a live chance, I think. She tries very hard, um, and she's in good form. So we'll be very, very hopeful of a big run. I mean, given she's that you. a very competitive field, and she's got nearly £10 to to beat the rest of the fillies, you know, the two top ones, obviously. Um, but I think she's bad in her on the last day. 
and and you you obviously know that she stays really well. I mean, does that does that mean you can get out there and be pretty bold on her? Yeah, well, I've never actually rode her before. Um, it's obviously my first time on her, but I do know the city well from home. But obviously, I'll go through um, tactics with Joseph before the race and see what he wants to do. But I'd imagine we're going to be going forward um, and using our stamina to effect. And are you worried about the rain? I don't think it'll be a worry. Really? So you'd think she'd be as effective with, with loads of loads of cut as she would be with on top of the ground? I don't know that. I don't know that, to be honest. But the one thing I know is the slower the ground, the more of a stamina test it's going to be. Um, the more rain there is, the more it's probably going to help save the last dance, as everyone knows. What she did when she got heavy ground in uh, Chester. But we're just going to have to see. All right, Jane, well, you heard what Dylan had to say. It slightly increases my confidence, to be honest. Quite often, you, you, you're you used to trainers and jockeys bigging up their chances, but he made a very cogent case for, for Lumiere Rock. Yeah, but he's legitimising why he thinks he will get closer to Warm Heart. He's thinking aggressively in how he's going to to make that happen for himself. And if he's very confident that she'll stay, then if she does handle the ground, it's not going to suit every filly, but until they're running it, you never really know. Look, she has she has very good form. She has a very good level of form. And uh, as he, he said, on ratings, he has nine pounds to find that saves the last dance. But that isn't beyond the realms of possibility in a race like this. And um, yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm very interested in how proactive he is in his thinking. He's in the UK riding today. He's got the Oaks coming tomorrow, but he already has that game plan. And he said, you can tell what he's going to have a chat with Joseph. He's also going to give Joseph his opinion and an opinion that he obviously feels quite strong about. The Irish Oaks taking place tomorrow at the Curra. The Racing Post this morning, Friday morning, featured a, a very interesting and in-depth and thoroughly researched study by James Stevens into the sharp decline in trainer numbers, which has caused some concern at the National Trainers Federation. There have been some very high-profile examples in the last year or so. Keith Dalgleish and Harry Dunlop and Oliver Sherwood perhaps um, most recently has attracted the, the most attention of trainers who've uh, stood down for various different reasons. Um, there is also the suggestion in the piece that having more horses in fewer hands leads to racing becoming boring and, and uncompetitive. And there's a, a certain degree of, of nostalgia for a, for a bygone era where there were more people with licences and there were more smaller yards and less super trainers. Uh, Mark Johnston is a man very well equipped to talk about this because he started with hardly a horse at all, uh, very, very few horses, and progressed to being numerically the most powerful stable in the yard and also to training more winners than any other person in the history of British racing. And I asked him to reflect on the relative challenges of training a very small amount of horses relative to an extremely large amount. Yeah, well, I've certainly always said that as our own yard grew, we started with with 12 horses, of which only three and a half were paying. And, you know, we luckily made money out of, you know, I lost lost a significant amount of money in the first two years and then sold the yard to to pay for it. Um, and we just, we weren't financially viable then. And 
it took till we moved from 44 horses to 57 for us just to break even. But so, so the financial side has always been the same. That it's very, very difficult to to make a small yard pay. Um, but also from the point of view of care of the horses and efficiently running the yard, as we grew, it got easier and it got better. Having more staff, if you, you when you're very small, you've only got a very small number of staff and you go racing with one horse and you're left very, very short staffed at home looking after the others. Um, but then also, I think after 1992 uh, was when we stopped having to use horses of completely different age and different type to, to work together. And we, we had a sort of critical mass where we could group horses uh, along with others of similar abilities and and type. And that is very, very important and makes it much more, I think, easier to get the best out of the horses. What do you make of the contention that the, the more trainers stop, the, the less interesting and competitive the sport will be? Um, I'm not sure if that's the case. You know, I think certainly it is, it is important where we're seeing um, good trainers with yards at, of a size that should be, be viable going out of the sport. And there's been a number of them in the last few years. And so that is certainly a concern. But loss of the, the, the tiny hobby trainers is not a, a concern to me for the sport. I don't think that's damaging for the sport at all. Um, and I don't think growth of yards, uh, years ago we saw very, very few yards with over 100 horses, uh, now it's commonplace. Um, and I don't think that's a, a bad thing at all. I'm not sure about the the assertion that was made in the paper today that uh, it, it means horses are diverted from running against each other. Um, that's surely more an owner thing, more horses being in one ownership, because generally, if we had two horses of similar ability where, where the, they're aiming for the same race, then they're going to run in the same race, and I don't think it matters that, that one trainer trains them. Um, so I'm not sure that it, it makes it less interesting. So how do you view what is sort of received wisdom that the big massive super stables are inherently bad for the sport i think it's just it's almost like saying supermarkets are, are bad and um, i i don't know i just i don't feel it's bad for the sport and never have done and um you know i i think in in our own personal circumstances i think we've got much better and much more efficient as we as we grew all right, that was trainer Mark Johnston. Um, and I, I'm, I've always been very interested in his view on that. I, Jane, there is a sort of rose-tinted view in the in the UK that things were better than they are now because there used to be far more trainers. And he absolutely underlines the point that you don't want trainers who have, should have viable businesses you know, going under. But I, I take his point that you can sometimes achieve what you want to achieve more efficiently and effectively in the environment of a, of a bigger stable. Like James Stevens has written a very well-informed um, piece today in the Racing Post and there's graphs and there's colours and there's numbers. But behind every number is a very different type of establishment. Um, for a very long time, racing was a subsidiary to 
a farming business or a full-time job where a person had some horses on land beside their house or you know they use somebody else's gallop or they just they had a hobby and their hobby was their their racehorse that's that was some side of it another side of it is a lot of people don't own their own farms and uh, they're renting and it's just become unviable uh, another side of it is economies of scale um whereas the bigger yards are finding it more efficient to cover costs rising costs with the number of horses that they have i remember when sandra hughes took over from her dad she only uh the late daisy hughes who was obviously a brilliant trainer she found that if you didn't have the numbers it was a pointless exercise to go through the the motions essentially and i can see it here like we have our own small number of horses in training training has never covered the costs here it has always been a subsidiary to to the breeding side of it um we have dry stock cows things like that that if you were solely relying on horses and training you would run into the ground so um I'd, I'd imagine a lot of people down through the years the the business frame has changed because the people call it red tape but ultimately the industry has got more professional in in all aspects from administration to registration to veterinary care to tracking and tracing and transport and everything that encompasses now a professional business people talk about point to points over here becoming what was an amateur sport a professional game it probably needed to happen um because the game is 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 not a game anymore it's a serious business there's a serious amount of money being changed hands and it's a dangerous sport so it needs to be properly regulated so all of those things what were fine 30 40 years ago have evolved and it has probably undoubtedly squeezed a lot of people out along the way uh, who didn't want to or couldn't find it viable to work for them. But also, and I've said this on the podcast before, there's a stigma when older trainers, I'm not in going to name any names because there's some trainers who have been forced out of the game due to costs and a number of other personal reasons, but the older trainers have a right to retire. There's almost a stigma in this game that if somebody retires that they're being forced out of the game. It is okay for anybody in any other walk of life to retire. I don't see why there is a stigma and it, people listening might say there isn't one, but over here I certainly feel like there is. If somebody, a trainer, retires, that it's for any other reason than them wanting to relax and enjoy the rest of their life. Well, the legacy of the late and much missed Pat Smullen very much lives on. And it lives on in part through the Pat Smullen race day in aid of Cancer Trials Ireland, which this year takes place on August the 26th. Uh, those of you who remember and were very fond of Pat will have vivid memories of that first uh, charity race day, which he very much led from the front and brought together a stellar cast of some of the world's greatest jockeys to raise a huge amount of money for Cancer Trials Ireland, which is still having a massive impact. Uh, that's why Francis Crowley joins me now. Francis, it's impossible really to overstate the impact of of what of what Pat started, isn't it? 
Yeah, and and to be honest, it has uh, it has gotten bigger and has more had more of an impact than even he could have imagined. I think we're, so. We're running this off the back of the announcement of the Pat Smullen Chair in Pancreatic Cancer in UCD, which is going to be a huge legacy for him. Um, it's a position in UCD. It's going to be filled by a world class pancreatic specialist on- oncologist. And it's uh, it's going to be a dual purpose uh, position whereby they will be working as a clinician in St. Vincent's University Hospital where, it, where Pat was treated himself and also have a research and uh, teaching role in UCD. So it's a huge honour and it's uh, going to be um, part funded by the, the money we have raised and that Pat raised and uh, so apart from all the trials that he's already been able to set in place um, this is a huge step forward and it I, I think it just shows that where the money is going and I think people are really happy to see that it's being put to good use and hopefully it'll it'll encourage people to keep donating. Uh, and the race day itself I mean I, I was recalling just there in the in the introduction that that first race day and um, as I said Pat led from the front. It was a it was a miserable, wet, windy day on the Curra, and if ever anyone needed to be reminded of of just what a determined character he he was, it was in it was in that it was in that moment, wasn't it? In those images on that day. Yeah, and and you know, and and we had huge support from the racing community. You know, um, I can't emphasise the crowd, the atmosphere, um, the money donated. You know, we we raised so much money that day. And, um, you know, of course, it's hard to replicate that and, you know, it's hard to keep up the momentum. But I think people do remember, they remember Pat, they remember that day and it's definitely helped. And we have to keep up the momentum now to fulfill um, uh, the money we have pledged for this. So the, the pressure is on. So we need people, <laughs> we need people to support us. He set, he set the bar quite high for you, didn't he? Is that he got the ball rolling, but you need to keep it rolling. Yeah, but you know what? He's there in the background directing operations. I've heard so many. Um, I've heard so many people, particularly in the in in the the sort of um, the medical side of things, who are pushing this. Where they say, you know, I, like for instance, one one man was telling me, you know, I never visited the national stuff, but I just happened to pop in there, and I was standing there rubbing right of passage when the call came in. Uh, telling me about this and I was and he, you know he said I was just standing there going what a coincidence and to me that's Pat in the background he's he's moving all the pawns around you know we're all just pawns in his in his uh, bigger <laughs> bigger plan I think you know and we know and you know more than anybody that you know the devastating effects of, of pancreatic cancer you're, you're obviously across a lot of the research that, that's happening at the moment you do see some some progress don't you you do see some some green shoots yeah so i mean there is you know obviously i am not by no means an expert but just looking on from the background and seeing what's happening you know i think there's a lot of steps forward there's a car t cell therapy which has been used in kind of the blood cancers and the easier to treat cancers and is having great results and and you know we're you know that could possibly step into the pancreatic cancer space and then you have all the genetic treatments that are coming through. Again, pancreatic cancer tends to be left on the back burner. Uh, all the easier to treat cancers are, are looked at first. So, you know, it's going to help bring all these treatments, uh, hopefully, um, 
get get to try them for pancreatic cancer. It's all about doing trials. It's you know, um, I think there's no easy fix for any cancer. Um, that one cure for cancer, I think, is is not something that that is ever going to happen. It's always going to be a case of finding things for people to live with cancer and be able to live well. Uh, absolutely. Uh- Coming back to where we where we began, to, to for us to raise money through the, the, the Cancer Trials Day, the Pat Smullen Race Day on the 26th of August, you're looking for a good lineup again. You're looking for, for a star cast. Who's eligible to ride in the race? Yeah, so, so we're having a charge race. Look, the, 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 the big, the champions race, that's never going to be replicated. And, you know, we couldn't do that. But, but this is about having people ride in it who would just love a chance to ride on the current turf you don't have to be a jockey you don't have to have a license you, you do need to be relatively fit and competent of course um you do do an assessment but it's not as rigorous an assessment as you would have to undergo for a proper jockey's license so for instance um we have a cancer research nurse who actually is specializing in pancreatic cancer has contacted us from England and she's interested in doing it and she's interested in using it to raise awareness for what she's doing and she's going to ride in memory of you know patients of hers who have died um Hannah my daughter uh who's only 20 she's going to ride in it in memory of her dad um we have Sue Short who's who is a a past Olympic uh, event rider and she's going to ride in memory of her brother John Mm -hmm. And, you know, we have other people signed up, but we are looking for more people. And, you know, uh, at the moment, there is um, an expression of interest gone out there. So you just send in an, e- an email to charityrace at uh, uh to that email, and we'll be pushing that out on social media. And um, that is, uh, so basically send in your expression of interest. It's not a commitment. It's exactly what it says, an expression of interest and we're, we'll be putting out a call to trainers to please support. Um, it's a mile and a half on the lovely Corrid Turf, uh, a conditions race, perfect for flat and some nice, uh, you know, get your jump horses out to have a nice uh, a nice pre-season gallop would be ideal as well. So, um, yeah, we're putting the call out there for riders and trainers alike. And you mentioned your daughter, Hannah, who had her first ride under rules last night at Killarney. Um, yeah, that's right. Sorry, the dogs are going mad in the background here. Um, yeah, so she she previously had a ride in the Pontchartan Charity Race, so she had her first proper ride in a bumper last night. So she loved it. So I'm in I'm in big trouble now. Of not only to produce ponies, but also try and provide racehorses for her as well. So they'll have me on the road. Uh, Francis, thanks so much for talking to us uh, as ever, and and best of luck with it this year. Thank thank you so much, Nick. Thank thanks for talking to me. Francis Crowley there, 26th of August then, the uh, the race itself, and the race day, the Pat Smullen race day for, for cancertrials.ie. Um, Jane, surely, surely now is the time. Cometh the hour, cometh Jane Mangan, a great comeback with your profile, uh, you know, as one of uh, Ireland's best-loved presenters, um, one of the least controversial stars on RTE. Surely it's your time. Oh, you're so full of crap, aren't you? Um, that's a very nice compliment. I I do take it with a grain of salt. Frances actually sent. I I had a chat with her yesterday. She said it to me. Would Would I be tempted? Um, under no circumstances am I tempted at the moment because I had probably never been in worse shape in my entire life. 
And this is, uh, yes, a great cause and a charity race, but it is not a platform on which I want to embarrass myself. So I do, uh, anybody who's interested or um, wants to sign up, it's a fantastic cause, but be under no illusions. You, you have to get in good shape or be in good shape to do it. And uh, right now I'm not, but I appreciate all the compliments and being asked. Uh, but it'll be interesting. It'll it'll be, you know, that that uh, Pat Smullen day at the Curra um, was in the, in the, we got biblical rain the first year that was run and it didn't dampen the mood at all. And AP and Ruby and Paul Carberry and Ted Durkin and all of those people who rode in the Legends race, that was probably the most memorable day at the Curra I've ever had and probably will ever have. That was a magic day. And the fact that his legacy is continuing on um, and the, the funds continue to be raised for a cause that is so dear to so many hearts uh, is really heartwarming. And it's a sign as well of, of Pat's family, their determination to keep this alive. And the core, of course, the industry getting behind them again, gives a feel good feeling, you know, to the, to the industry and what, what we're capable of achieving when we all group together. So 26th of August, uh, it mightn't be the Derby. It mightn't be the Oaks but it might be as entertaining as any of them. Well, here in Monmouth Park, uh, anticipation growing ahead of tomorrow's TVG.com Haskell. It, it really is a, a terrific race as well. Not only the Kentucky Derby winner, uh, Mage, but a whole host of horses that you think can end up being candidates for one of the leading three-year-olds at the end of the year. You'll have heard of Tappet Trice because he's been on the Triple Crown Trail and has acquitted himself, certainly with, with credit in the Belmont Stakes when he was third. He's already a, a grade one winner. You might be familiar with Richard Mandela's horse, Go Rocket Ride, who was a, a very good winner of the Affirmed Stakes at Santa Anita just a, a few weeks ago. Uh, don't underestimate Extra Anejo, who was going to be Steve Asmussen's Triple Crown horse, didn't quite make it, but has really come good of late. In a, in a minor stake at Ellis Park last time. And of course, to the outside, you've got a horse who could easily go off the favourite here. Morning line odds of 5-2 to two in the Amazadan Colours, uh, Arabian Nights, trained by Bob Baffert and ridden by John Velasquez. Unbeaten in two, uh, but hasn't been seen since January. Uh, owner Amir Zidane joins me now. Amir, this is a, a big call. Uh, six months off the track, straight into a grade one against top quality opposition, including the Derby winner. How are you feeling about the whole project? Well, I'm feeling very, um, uh, what's the word, uh, cautiously optimistic, so to say. Uh, um, he's, uh, we were very big on the horse. He's, uh, he's, he's, he's won impressively in his uh, two starts. So we think, and, and obviously Bob uh, believes this is the perfect spot for him to come back. Um, the six months layoff concerns me a little bit, but he's been training quite well. And I hope he, uh, he shows up to our expectations. So when he, he won at Oaklawn, obviously everybody was raving about him. What happened between then and now? He wasn't, uh, I mean, his performance in Oakland in the slop was, was pretty impressive. We were very happy that he was a horse that was mature. He was able to travel, show up and, and, and beat, uh, beat, beat the elements, beat the conditions, be it uh, rain or, or, or dry track or what have you. Um, a few months into it, we felt that he wasn't really developing and he needed some time off. And because he had so much prospect as a, as a proper racehorse, uh, we made the tough decision to slow down on him, let him develop into his frame, uh, become the horse we hope he would be towards the latter part of the year and uh, grow into himself. And we feel he's there right now as much as of a tough decision it was, but it was the right decision to do by the horse. And uh, I hope he uh, 
he um, he pays us back in, in terms of performance. It, this is going to tell you quite a lot, isn't it? Because if you can if you can defeat this group and and defeat them well, you can really start dreaming. Yeah, you know, we start dreaming for the moment we bought the horse, but uh, for for sure, I mean, this is an this is an amazing uh, group of horses. There, I'm, I'm I'm pleasantly surprised with the quality uh, with everybody you've just uh, mentioned in your in your uh, in your prelude to this uh, to this interview. So, it's an impressive group. Uh, if God willing, we were to show up and Arabian Night uh, comes up prevailing, it will be uh, a testament to his his raw talent, but also to his ability to. Uh, to compete and beat a good group of horses for sure. Uh, Amir, I was just interested to hear you saying that you'd, you'd kind of laid off him and then allowed him time to develop physically. Last year, with with Tabor, you went straight into the derby. You chucked him in deep, it didn't come off, but then he came back and, and was one of the best three-year-olds by the end of the year. Was it a question of once bitten, twice shy? Was that going through your mind when you, when you went for a slightly more circumspect route with this horse? I mean, no, there were different circumstances, although there are parallels there. But with, with Taba, if you recall, he won the San Diego Derby mm. and he got the points. So it, it made every sense to go into the Kentucky Derby. Um, obviously, hindsight is twenty twenty. but uh, uh, had had we known what we know today, we think we we know it's, it was a tall order for him. He was very immature. He, traffic didn't suit Taba at the time. And now it was a situation where the horse wasn't really with Arabian Night. He wasn't really ready. I mean, physically, he needed a little bit more development. And he's that kind of, in our view, selfishly speaking, he is that kind of a horse. It is too early, too ambitious to compare him to the flight lines of the world, if you will. But if you look at the way flight lines progression was and, and, and the gap between races, fast horses, good horses require a little bit of gap between between races. And we feel that uh, he is a horse that needs that. I'm, again, I'm not, it's premature to uh, to compare him to, to the flight lines of the world, but we felt that he is a kind of horse that would demand and require that spacing. So there are two different circumstances between Taba and Arabian Night. And speaking of Tabor, how is he and where is he going to be seen next? Uh, he's doing very well. We, we just wanted to give him a little bit of a break. Uh, he traveled to the Middle East and came back in good form. And uh, Bob's a master at uh, defining every horse's requirement and progression plan. Uh, he is one tough horse to train. Uh, he's uh, he's just he doesn't he doesn't like Bob says he doesn't like to do his homework. So he just needed a little bit of a time off, and I think Bob's bringing him back soon. And hopefully, if all works well, maybe I mean again we'd have to ask Bob, but I would think maybe the the Breeders' Cup or something before or after somewhere around that timeline. Um, good luck with Arabian Night tomorrow, uh, Amir. Thanks so much for your for your time today. Always oh, a pleasure, Nick. Thanks a lot. Amir Zidane there. Good luck to him tomorrow in the Haskell. And all week on the podcast, we've been starting our build-up towards the King George VI and Queen Elizabeth Stakes at Ascot, uh, which takes place a week tomorrow. And so many exciting contenders. But you can add a little Gallic flair to the mix, courtesy of Sim Camille, who has improved really quite significantly over the last couple of seasons. Multiple Group 2 winner, only narrowly touched off in the pre gane earlier in the year as well. His trainer is Stefan Vatel, who is kind enough to join me now and is on holiday with his family, so I'm, I'm doubly grateful. Uh, Stefan, thanks for talking to me. First of all, it might be worth just filling our listeners in on how this horse got his, uh, his rather unusual name. 
Yeah, it's an unusual name. I don't know if it means anything for for uh, English uh, people, but uh, but it's a, it's a name of an old French car who, who, who when I was young was uh, was not really very fancy. It was more the car that you can buy uh, when uh, when you try to have a little sports car and you have no money when you're young. And of course, uh, of course, for 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 us, uh, it's uh, it's a fun. Name because uh, yeah, everybody in France remember one story with a Sim Camille. Uh, I don't know which car could be could be could do the the same effect in England, but uh, but it's uh, <laughs> it's been it's been for for my generation. But I'm I'm afraid young generation has not a clue of uh, what 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 was a, a Sim Camille. But, but it suggests to me, Stefan, that when you named this horse, you did not have great expectations of him, particularly. Uh, no, no, but no, no. It's, I named this horse because I I, I, I was writing this horse uh, first. Uh, no, I, I always try to find uh, some fun name for, for horses. And I had Boris de Deauville a couple of years ago, and I have uh, I, I always try to, to, to find funny names who will make, uh, make who will be um, well, what I think funny, but uh, you know, no, but uh, in, in my, but no, it's a, it's a fun name in in France. But we have to take this horse very seriously now because he's he's kept improving uh, hand over fist. When when did you first get the inclination that that he was good, that he was well above average? Yeah, well, I I, I started sky I started sky as two years old, and obviously the horse was not uh, at his peak. He progressed a lot at three years old. Uh, he won a maiden in province, but on a very good style uh, before trying the, the group three at Chantilly. And when he when he won, he won really very easy on a good style. And it's when I decide to to not train in the horse anymore and give back the horse to to his uh, breeder, and um, which is one uh, one of my my honor for years and years and uh, and uh, very gently offers me 30 percent of the of, of the wall so that that was a gentleman agreement a nice nice time a nice um, it's it's a nice story it's a nice story so, so now you 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 share the horse, or yeah, you share the horse between you. Yeah, 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 yeah. I have a part. Yeah, but uh, but you know, he's a, he's the owner. I'm the trainer, and uh, and, uh, and that's that's the only things who matters. And those, the horse makes progress. Uh, I didn't want to 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 go on the arc uh, on the arc last year because we first we had to supplemented him secondly it was on heavy ground that he, that he, he, he's not he doesn't fancy heavy ground and so we decided to go in japan uh, we were invited in the japan cup and it didn't it didn't work well and but i was very happy to see that he uh, that this year he, we we can have a, a new horse. Uh, it didn't affect him uh, to have a bad run in Japan, and he was very efficient this year. So of course he won on a very easy style as uh, a Grand Prix Chantilly, but but it was not a very good level. So so you know it. Uh, uh, but the thing is, is tough. He loved fast pace. Is a horse of a, of a good ground, 
and I think I think now he's uh, mature enough to make a try. Of course, I know I I, I know how it will be difficult to be how uh, the, the race of the, the King George will be a, a very with very good opponents, but uh, but uh, but he's a tough horse, and I I think he we we, we can make the we we can try the challenge. And who will ride him when he comes to to Ascot? It's Alexis Pouchin is is really a, a very young, very promising young jockey. He rode the horse perfectly. He will have the horse back in front. But really, I need I need an experienced jockey uh, for Ascot, and it's Christophe Soumillon who's going to ride the horse. All right, nice story there. Uh, good luck to Stefan Vatel and all the connections of Sim Camille as he comes for a bold bid. Uh, for the King George, I'm, I'm a, we are building it up early enough, Jane. But if they if they all turn up, it's going to be an absolute belter. It is, and I was listening to your interview with Aidan O'Brien. Tempted to run up to five horses in the race, and then you have um, the prospect of Desert Crown coming back and us finding out how good he really is and hook him in there. It it really could be the the highlight of the the midsummer. Um, I, I enjoyed I enjoyed that from Aidan. I thought it was a bit of a come on come and have a go if you think you're hard enough. You know, I'm gonna. I'm gonna fire five at this, yeah, <laughs> and see see who see who's still got the stomach for it when uh, when it actually comes down to declaration time. He's he's a you know when you hear Aiden talk, softly spoken man, very mannerly and and always consummate gentleman. But there's a reason why he's as good as he is. He's competitive, and you can tell he's up for the challenge. Right. Um, what are you going to give us for this afternoon? I'm going to give you a little rant before I give you my tip. And it's down in Killarney today. Um, a lot of people talk about the pattern in terms of flat racing. Well, I'm a National Hunt woman through and through in my heart. And I have a real bone to pick. And I have been picking it for a while with black type races that are handicaps. The 340 today in Killarney is a handicap chase, but it is classified as a listed race. So sole pretender who carries top weight of 11.12, he's rated 146. Uh, he's your top weight, knock on steel down the bottom, running from 16 pounds out of the handicap with a rating of 120 and has a seven pound claimer taking seven pounds off 10 stone. If they finish first and second, if knock on steel beats sole pretender, he will achieve big black type over sole pretender who's carrying so much more weight than him, a stone and 12 pounds more. Um, and he would be graded a small black type if they had never achieved black type before today. Handicaps should not be classified as black type. They should not have the opportunity to earn as such. I know I've had this bone to pick with Weatherby's and with the sales companies in the past. Nothing has been done about it. If you were running in a handicap like the Ebor and you carried two stone less than the top weight, should you be getting a classification of black type status? Of course right, you don't. So, That's why so, handicaps are not classified as black type on the flat. So Given that the, the whole routes of jumping are different and that some of the great marquee races in jumping, i.e. the Grand National, the what used to be the Hennessy, now the, the Coral uh, in, in, in Newbury, um, the Welsh National, the Bet365 Gold Cup, the Scottish National, they're all Irish National and a million good handicaps in Ireland that have listed or black type status. Would you bin all, all black type from all of those? Black type should only be achieved in races that are weight for age. 
I mean, it rather begs the question then, given the way that the, the jump racing structure, and given the fact we actually encourage the best horses to run in handicaps, that's where the two codes are different, you see. You can actually get the best horse in training running in the race at Newbury in November off top weight. Yeah. And, a, a, yeah. a, 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 and his or her performance would garner them under your new regulations, no no black type at all for their family. big person money. For their family. For their family in the program book, which would 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 also not really be a fair reflection of, of uh, of what what they've achieved. So it's actually there a case for saying the pattern just shouldn't really exist in jump racing. It's a waste of time, isn't it? As a as a whole, as a as a concept, because we don't we don't encourage people to campaign their horses in the same way. Yeah, I don't believe that it, it has no purpose. Um, I do. We for for the purpose of pedigrees, of course, we do need to know. Uh, what class of horses are better than others. But if your horse, say Denman, carries top weight in the Hennessy, he's good enough to compete in genuine graded races and win. Thus, he will do that thereafter. But Paul Nichols didn't target the Hennessy because of its graded status. He targeted because it is a prestigious race with a huge purse. Nobody targets the Aintree Grand National because you'll achieve grade three winning status. You will target it because it's the Aintree Grand National. And also most of the owners, unless they're, unless they're owner breed, most of the owners of top class jump horses are not the breeders of them. And unlike on the flat, and therefore they don't really care whether they get black type and whether the horses get black type in the program book or, or not. I, I mean, is it not now time then that we just start dishing out bold type in the program book for rating achieved rather than for rather than for you know classification of race in which you've managed to finish third well that that's an argument that has already been put forward but i think one step at a time and the first step would be to strip handicaps of black type status i still remember standing at leopardstown dublin racing festival delta work had just won the irish gold cup a half an hour later a horse called glamorgan duke carried 10 stone bottom weight to win the Leopardstown chase, which was classified as grade A at the time. Both horses go into the pedigree book as grade one winners on the same day at Leopardstown. That's just blatantly wrong. And there has been much agreement on this, but yet nothing done. And I wonder why are we sitting on our hands? Well, well ranted, Jane, well yes. ranted and a, and a worthwhile rant, I think. Yeah, um, it, it won't be one that I leave go too lightly. You know, when you have when I have the bit between my teeth, there might be a tweet to follow. Um, JP McManus has a number of good chances today, and I think you might have one with a short price double. Hercule de Soy is a very good horse. He's a keen going, front running, could make all in the 4.15 novice chase down in Killarney, courtesy of Jodie McGarvey and Willie Mullins. And then going up to Kilbegan, Mark Walsh has opted to go up there to ride Sundial, a horse that was beaten just three lengths in the Fred Winter when he was fourth back in March. He runs in a maiden hurdle at 6.10 and I'd be very surprised if either of them get beaten. Love it, Jane. Thanks so much. Thank you very much for your time. Uh, don't forget, if you do enjoy this podcast, tell your friends, first of all. But if you've got a minute, if you could give us a rating and a review, uh, wherever you happen to consume your pods, that would be most welcome and very helpful to all of us. We really appreciate uh, your loyal following. And we will see you again on Monday. And don't forget, tonight from 9 o'clock, Charlotte will be back to round up uh, all the running plans for this week's big races in the Saturday edition. But from Jane and from me and from all our team, it's bye for now. Have a great weekend. You've been listening to Nick Luck Daily. 
brought to you in association with Fitzdares, the Racehorse Owners Association and Thoroughbred Racing Commentary. Thank you.